uh, Chris and I are here today to talk about a lady named Myra Edinburgh. And Myra is a friend of ours. Uh, I know Myra from community Bible study. She was in my covenant group for a year. And I came to find her to be a fine and wonderful woman. Well, Myra right now is in prison. And this is, this is not this. Okay. Uh, if you could imagine anyone who should not be in prison, it's Myra. You might as well look at me and say, Jan Buckley is in prison. How did that happen? When I was a, a child, my father worked for IBM, and my mother had inherited some rental properties. <coughs> And so on the weekends, my father would be home on the weekend, right? Home, except he wouldn't be home. He'd be, he would be uh, cutting the grass at the rental property or cutting the grass at the home, our home, or fixing plaster wood or reinstalling fixtures and getting ready for new renters. So the kids, my brother, sister, and I were alone a lot. Now, really, I am going somewhere with this. This has to do with Myra. And so what did kids do in the 50s when they were home alone? They watched Tarzan. You remember Tarzan, don't you? Oh, yeah. Tarzan was wonderful. He had that famous cry. You all know it. You hear it right now. Only to be matched by Carol Burnett. Right? Nobody else can do it. Tarzan could do anything. He never got cold. His skins were never sent to the dry cleaner. There was no problem in the jungle. He was king of the jungle. But it seemed that in every program, someone, maybe every other program, would wander into the quicksand. You remember the quicksand? And it was always covered. It had vines on it. It had leaves on it. And there was usually a sign that said quicksand ahead. It was in English. <laughs> but Cheetah, remember that rascal Cheetah, had turned the arrow. Or had knocked the sign down. So the big game hunter went plowing right ahead into the quicksand. Even Jane got caught in quicksand. Even Tarzan got caught in quicksand. But, if you remember, there was an elephant. And the elephant would give his sound saying, I've got this covered. And the elephant would pull Jane out. Or Cheetah would throw a vine. There was always a helping hand, wasn't there? Because Tarzan and Jane were good people. Good people get pulled out of quicksand. The African hunters, they never returned. They went hunting in Alabama. <laughs> I have never in my life seen quicksand. How about you? I watch Hawaii Five-0. They have jungles. 
I watch the Nature Channel. There are jungles in that. But I've never seen quicksand. So does that mean quicksand doesn't exist? Is quicksand fictional? <coughs> Have you ever been stopped by a policeman? No. <laughs> I have too. I was speeding on John in uh, on Old Milton in Johns Creek. Oh, bad, bad. The officer who stopped me did not know my character. He did not look at my clean hair, my clean clothes, my smile. He wasn't interested at all in knowing me. He also asked me if I was transporting illegal substances. <laughs> Were you? <laughs> That's a tricky one to answer, isn't it? Wow. Well, I gave him the deer in the headlights look, you know. He said, Drugs. No. But I felt just the tinge of quicksand around my toes, and it did not feel good. I remember it. I'm telling you this story. Three years later, I still feel his look. I still feel the quicksand. You know, Joseph was a dreamer. Joseph in the book of Genesis. And he was innocently sent on an errand by his father, Jacob. And little did Joseph ever dream that that day he would be thrown in a well, soon sold into slavery by his jealous brothers. And as if that weren't enough, he would later be seduced, wrongfully accused by his Egyptian master's wife, and tossed into prison, basically, to die there. And how about our Jesus? Perfect and pure in every way. Jesus found deep quicksand. And there was no helpful hand or vine or elephant offering to reach out to him. No voice of reason in the screaming crowd as to the facts of his, of, of the uh, unfairness of his predicament. Innocent people do end up in prison. Not always, but sometimes it happens. We can, each of us, fall into deep and serious trouble. Sometimes through the actions of others. Association. Bankruptcy. Divorce. Depression, drugs, cancer, jail. We all get our toes stuck in the nasty. Quicksand is a reality of being human. So Myra is in quicksand. She was in my covenant group for a year. And I got to know her very well. A very fine woman. A very Christian woman. Myra has changed my life. 
Chris and Dave Taylor are going to help you understand Myra's story and how she needs a vine. Jan, I couldn't have asked for a better beginning. Thank you so much. Also, thank you uh, to Mary and to Linda Boswell, who made today available for us to share the story with you, because it's um, the first Sunday of Advent, and this is not a strictly um, first Sunday of Advent lesson, but it's my last opportunity to be with you for a long time. Um, We're anticipating the arrival of our, our fourth and probably our last grandchild, over Christmas time, and I'm going to be uh, going into exile very soon. <laughs> Can you believe that? <laughs> yeah, yeah, up to D.C., and, and if uh, daughter Heather has anything to say about it, I'm not coming back for a really long time. Um, also want to thank Jan for that marvelous beginning, and, and Dave, my sidekick and my support always. And a special thank you to Gary and Grant, uh, Gary and Gwen Grant for being here today. They passed up their early morning service. Um, they have been allies and supporters in this effort. We have all been through to help Myra um, through this, these legal problems, and you're very special to me, and I appreciate all you've done. <clears throat> Let's begin with a prayer. Heavenly Father, as you instruct us in the book of Hebrews, continue to remember those in prison as if you were together with them in prison, and those who are mistreated as if you yourselves were suffering. With with this admonition in our hearts, let us always be grateful for those who dispense justice and be vigilant of those who would deny it. Help us grow in compassion and understanding as you lead us to be Christian advocates for the persecuted. We pray this in your name, O Lord. Amen. Well, my objective today, as you've already gotten a hint of, is to share with you a real-life but very frightening and also a very uplifting story of a woman of great faith and her battle for justice against the federal government. As Jan alluded to in her wonderful metaphor about quicksand, no one has thrown the rope yet. Here's a picture of Myra last fall, last October, feeding the the homeless. She's the one on the left. Does anybody recognize her? Yeah? Do you know her? Do you know anything about her situation? No. Okay. Um, I hear some some, uh uh-huh, but not a lot of serious understanding. Okay. Well, if you've seen her around here before, it's because she did a lot of volunteer work at Job Networking, which is where where you probably saw her. She's uh, a member of Andy Stanley's church, but that's not a great church in which to do volunteer work and mission work. And so she came to churches like ours to um, participate. You may have seen her there where she was a table leader. She um, trained facilitators, and she worked with Donna Litton in the professional clothes closet. Um, She's actually one of us. She's a member of our community, a resident of Roswell. She's in her 50s, proud mother of three really wonderful kids and two two adorable grandkids, and still married to her first husband. So let's take a look at the background of her legal troubles. A little early on that one. Back to Myra. Okay. Um, In 2003 and 2004, Myra worked as an office manager for a small investment firm. There was a a partner based in Europe and another one here in Roswell, and that's for whom she worked. 
turned out that the investment was actually a Ponzi scheme, largely driven, I believe, by the woman in Europe who fled at the first sign of trouble to Hong Kong beyond extradition and with about $13 million of OPM, other people's money. Um, the firm was taken into receivership, a uh, very scary and frightening time. Um, and at that point, um, let's fast forward to, to Myra and let me introduce you to how I became friends with her. In the spring of 2011, um, friends knew that I hire caregivers to take care of my mom, who will be 96 this month, and they stay with her with, and provide companionship and care during the day. Someone had recommended Myra to me. I, I did, wasn't really looking for someone, but we met. We had a great meeting, and she got along very well with my mother. And as it became obvious I was going to have to make a change in caregivers, we started communicating again. Well, as I pushed Myra for a start date when I could make the change in caregivers, she instead suggested that we go out for breakfast. So I picked her up. We went into Roswell for breakfast, and over omelets and croissants, she said, I have to share something with you. I'm under federal indictment for conspiracy to commit fraud, and that's why I haven't been able to give you a start date. I'm going on trial in September. My attorney has told me I can plan nothing for that month, but if you can fit me in before that or after that, I would love to come work for you. Well, it was a bit of a shocking uh, thing to hear in a public restaurant over breakfast. But I controlled my face. Um, Mom taught me to be polite. And so we continued a conversation, me asking lots of questions, Myra being wonderfully open and answering them as clearly as she could. But I'm telling you, it was a complex case and a complex situation. So I wasn't able to get all the information in that one meeting. But I did feel comfortable enough to hire her. Now, my family was skeptical. You should have seen the look on Dave's face when I, when I told him about this. But I kind of knew that if she came into our home and worked part-time with us before the trial, that I'd have an excellent opportunity to get to know her character and also learn a lot more about what was behind the situation. So we did. We started that. Um, and really, by the time she went to trial a month later, there, there were no skeptics in my family in my friends that had met her. <clears throat> so why did I become, of my, become convinced of her innocence? Well, there were many reasons. But what you've heard so far is very subjective and not convincing to people who don't know her. But I think it's important that we touch on the subject of guilt or innocence because if we don't, it's going to be rattling around in everybody's brain and you won't be able to hear her story. So first, um, I want to give you some facts. The first is that after the company was taken into receivership, Myra and her husband Doug were, were subjected to an incredible audit by the SEC. If you've been through an IRS audit, and, and we have, it's like that on steroids. So at the end of that process, they were completely cleared of any wrongdoing. She was found not to have had any financial gain from her two years with the company, except for, of course, her salary. And, of course, during those two years, to add insult to injury, both of her parents had died. Um, Doug's last parent died in the same two-year period, and it was a very um, distracting, distracting time and, and difficult time for them. But in the end, they, they got a small inheritance each, and they totally invested it with the company and, of course, lost everything as everyone else did. <clears throat> I... I also came along the way 
up with some deductive reasoning, and this was based purely on an accidental read of the book by Harry Markopoulos called No One Would Listen. You may remember he was the quantitative analyst, um, the Wall Street guru who was asked to create a similar uh, investment vehicle as Bernie Madoff had done because he was getting such great returns. And uh, Markopoulos studied and studied and studied this, wanted to please uh, the officers of his corporation and come up with this, but there was no way that that was a legitimate investment. He didn't know if it was a Ponzi scheme. He didn't know if uh, Madoff was doing something called front-running, which I I don't completely understand. But in the next nine years, he submitted five um, filings with the SEC pointing out the fraud, and as you heard, no one would listen. It wasn't until Madoff's own kids turned him in nine years later that it became public knowledge. Now, how did the funds get to Madoff? There were very few individual investors. There were many feeder funds, and these were led by portfolio managers, financial advisors who were hired by individual clients to invest their money safely and to obviously diversify their portfolio. None of these gurus, none of these experts, none of these financially trained individuals who invested with him for up to 20 years saw anything wrong with that investment. And I asked myself how Myra, with her two years of college education, no financial training, no experience in the industry, was expected to see this fraud. So that was some of the deductive reasoning, but I did go back to more subjective thinking. And that is a truism that that had... I heard this many years ago, and to me, it is about as dependable as gravity. And that is, we see the world as we see ourselves. And what was Myra? Who is Myra? She's trustworthy. And she, she trusted the people she worked for. Especially because her, her, specific, her direct manager professed to having the same concerns she did about those less fortunate. And he would talk about how he was going to take his gains and commit them to those less fortunate. She's trustworthy and she was trusting. So it's an intriguing subject, the story of her guilt or innocence, but let's set it aside for now. I'm happy to answer and talk more about it after class if we have time. Now what I'm going to do is, in my own words, try to do justice to a talk that Myra gave to CBS last fall um, about her story. And that story begins as a teenager growing up in Hawaii. And she and her siblings would love to climb to the top of a cliff where they would jump off into the ocean. And the way they would do this was they'd wait for a huge wave to come up. They'd jump into the wave, and it would carry them down to the ocean where they'd tread water until the next big big wave came up to carry them back up. Well, it wasn't always uh, the right size wave, so they, they would often find themselves clinging to the side of the cliff waiting again for that big wave to take them up. And when it finally did, it, you know, had forward momentum and it catapulted them right back onto the, the cliff. And when they landed on the solid rock of that cliff, they felt a lot of safety, a lot of security, and a lot of exhilaration. Again, going back to um, 2011, Myra told her classmates at CBS <clears throat> that 2011 was the most difficult trial of her life trial in that it was a lot of suffering, and trial in that it was being indicted, uh, tried by a jury, and found guilty. Myra was in need of a new rock. Dear, Dear friends, 
Do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. After Myra was cleared by the SEC um, and felt secure, she agreed to help the FBI build a case against her boss. She provided assistance for over five years. And at the end of that five, five years, she was dumbstruck when she was also indicted with him. Obviously, she had not sought um, representation during that time. She didn't think she needed it. And it never occurred to her to um, ask for a, a waiver of immunity. She just, like a lamb to slaughter, went to help them. Um, I guess we're ready for the next one. <clears throat> Deliver me from my enemies, O God. Protect me from those who rise up against me. Deliver me from evildoers and save me from bloodthirsty men. See how they lie and wait for me. Fierce men conspire against me for no offense or sin of mine, O Lord. I have done no wrong, yet they are ready to attack me. Arise to help me. Look on my plight. <clears throat> Not too long after the indictment came down, Myra was offered a so-called very lenient plea agreement. According to the government officials and to her public defender, it was something she should do. Um, If she didn't, she was going to go to jail. However, it required her to lie and to, to live that lie for the rest of her life. You may not know that if you accept a plea agreement, you virtually, um, declare yourself as guilty for leniency. And if you're ever found to be talking um, to others, uh, to groups, as not being guilty, they have every right and the ability to put you in jail. So she was going to have to live with that lie. <clears throat> she, was, uh, she was scared. She was intimidated. She came home and she, she turned to our Heavenly Father. It was time to have another serious talk with God. Her conversations with, with him went something like this. Really, God? You tell me to have integrity, and that is what I stand on today. It is what I want to stand on for the rest of my life. Am I not to stand on integrity, but a lie? She heard a faint echo as she prayed of something she used to tell her children when they were growing up. And the message always was, don't take the easy way out. Do the right thing. Well, this grew louder in her her mind, as did Um, the other side who were um, anxious for her to sign this plea agreement. She was berated by her first public defender as stupid for not taking it. So the conflict of doing right and the pressure to sign a plea agreement, she was on the verge of losing it quite literally. To maintain even a shred of equilibrium, Myra chose to fast. She sobbed a lot. She kept a journal, and she prayed and read the Bible. Eventually, God answered her. She heard him say very, very clearly, Stand on your truth. Stand on me, your rock. She had found a new rock. She took this to mean that she should reject the plea agreement and stand for a trial by jury. May integrity and uprightness protect me because my hope is in you. Do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. 
Myra felt her burden lift. Um, her future was unknown, but God was asking her to trust, really trust him in every moment and day to day. She was actually feeling joyful because trusting him was so much easier than living a lie. Myra was learning to lean on God and was shown his truths everywhere. There was a Bible study on Jonah that questioned, could life's interruptions be God's interventions? There was a weekend woman's conference where God gave her the experience of living above her circumstances, looking down on them, completely unaffected. It was an indescribable existence with God. She called it my little taste of heaven. Myra no longer asked him to give her peace in her circumstances, but to allow her to be in his presence, which always brought her peace, and to continue to read the Bible, finding this passage from Isaiah. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Fast forward, Myra's circumstances are, are going downhill quickly as the trial approaches. She had been told by her public defender that he would be there for her, that he'd be totally immersed in her case in the months leading up, in the weeks leading up to her trial, but he was frequently unavailable even by phone. <clears throat> Unfamiliar with the federal courtroom, fearful of possible outcomes, her mind would dive down into a downward spiral of all-consuming fear. She said it was similar to playing a game of chess with her life, but she didn't know the rules and she had no tools with which to develop a strategy. But God kept telling her to tell the truth, stand on me as your rock. She turned to Proverbs and the Gospel of John. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make your paths straight. I am leaving you with the gift of peace of mind and heart. And the peace I give is a gift the world cannot give. So don't be troubled or afraid. Every morning, Scripture jumped off the pages and seeped into the complete application, with complete application, into her core. God was present. They engaged in an intimate relationship. When Myra came to a place where, <clears throat> where Jesus was all she had in the moment, she realized he was all she would need in every moment. Myra developed a bottomless trust <clears throat> that he certainly is in control and cares about every detail of her life. But her fear <clears throat> could, could still catch her and send her into despair. She had to make a very conscious decision to trust God in that moment of deepest despair. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be terrified. Do not be discouraged, for the Lord is your God, for, you, for the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. As the beginning of the trial approached, Gwen Grant suggested to Myra that she ask friends to be in the courtroom to pray for her every day. Myra's first thought was, well, that's a lot to ask of, of friends. But she asked, and, and God provided a friend in the courtroom every day, many times multiple friends and family members. The first day of the trial, Myra walked into the federal courtroom not having any idea of what was to happen. But she was sure that our gracious father knew exactly. He wrapped her in a bubble of peace, gave her a keen sense of what was happening, and kept her emotional turmoil at bay. He didn't stop with the miracles either. On the ceiling of the courtroom, 
was an enormous concave, di concave dish filled with a solid light. To Myra, it was Jesus looking down on her and everyone else in the courtroom. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life eternal. The first week flew by. Her ears were hearing the details of the trial. She was taking notes, but her heart and mind were protected. Myra said it was completely a surreal experience. When she came home at night, the, the strain of, of staying protected in God's cocoon um, was so enormous that she felt like she'd been in the courtroom for a week, not a day. It was exhausting. The second week was a bit harder. Many times she lost her focus. Her attention drifted. It took no time at all to fall back into doing things her way, to relying solely on her abilities and not the Lord's. At times like this, she would silently look up, see Jesus in those lights, and regain her focus. Again, she was reminded that he wanted her to tell the truth, stand on him as her rock. Her gratitude was immense, was immense for his steadying hand. <clears throat> we demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. In the third week, the jury had finally heard all of the evidence and the charge from the judge, and they went off to deliberate. It was a difficult time to reject anxiety. She could not wait to get out of the building at the, every day, at, at the end of every day. She wanted to breathe fresh air. She needed to hug a friend and cry. Myra was grateful that at least the trial was over and she had survived. And surely the jury would come back with a not guilty verdict, and she would finally get on with her life. The Lord your God is with you. He is mighty to save. He will take great delight in you. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. On Friday afternoon, just in time for the weekend, the jury came back with a guilty verdict. Her mind cried out, God, how could this happen? I'm standing on your promises. You are my rock and my truth. Thinking became impossible. She went numb and slid, I believe, into a state of shock. As we drove home that day with her husband Doug at the wheel, Myra was in the back seat between her sister and her friend Lisa Flat. I was in the front seat, and we all wept as Myra wept. Then she expressed an urgent and very deep need to pray to God collectively. Doug pulled off the road and parked. <clears throat> we held hands and we prayed. It felt well in our souls to be before him and to acknowledge that God was the same God that he had been that morning. God had not changed, Myra explained later, but she realized her prayer requests were not necessarily bad, but just limited by what she could see and understand. She felt that her prayers were about her selfish desires for comfort, and they were laced with even a sinful pride. She was loath because she was loath to share the outcomes of her circumstances with anyone. She wanted to crawl in a hole and hide. Myra's desires were for a normal life again, but she also knew without a doubt that God's plans were better than her own. His promises were solid. Tell the truth. Stand on him as your rock. Myra actually believes today that the battle has been won and has eternal hope through Jesus that whatever God allows her to walk through 
It will be for her own benefit and to his glory. He will always be with her, be her rock. Okay. Myra ended her talk with a prayer, her talk to CBS with a prayer. More scripture and a statement of her personal faith. She prayed that day in community Bible study, Heavenly Father, thank you for the suffering in my life so that I may intimately know you. To find out through experience your promises are true. To know your love to be of the purest kind. To know your presence is a precious gift to me. To know I have that gift because your son trusted and obeyed even through his suffering. And then he gave his life for me. You had the perfect plan for Jesus and you have the perfect plan for me and all of us here in this room. As your servant, I humbly thank you for being my rock. These things I pray through your precious Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Look to the Lord and his strength. Seek his face always. Myra turned herself in uh, on February 7th of this year. She's now in a federal prison camp in Mariana, Florida. Before she did this, though, um, her naivety naivete had been smashed, and she found an excellent attorney to represent her in the sentencing phase and to bring the appeal. Her friends and family, in a matter of days, were able to raise $59,000 to cover the legal fees. And that's her story. And I'd like to end with a prayer that she says today in prison. God is always good. God loves me. God is in control. God has a perfect plan. I don't know where we are with time. Another couple of minutes. Another couple of minutes. Um, any thoughts or, or questions that we can answer? How long will she be in? The um, sentencing guidelines for the amount of money that was embezzled or stolen is 18 to 20 years. Um, however, the attorney really did a good job for her during the sentencing phase, and it's now seven years. She's been in since February. So, yeah. What about the jerk she worked for? <laughs> good, very good question. Um, he continued to, to, continues to be a problem for her. First of all, the federal government insisted on linking their two cases together. Um, and so she went to trial, and everything that the prosecutor said about him simply washed over on her. They were, they were telling truths about him, but the, jur- the jury assumed it was about her. The day the guilty verdict came back, um, he was taken out of the courtroom in handcuffs, and Myra was let free on her own recognizance. And I, I, I don't know his sentence, but I think it is the 18 to 20 years. He got 20 years. Okay. Where does the appeal stand? The appeal is, is, um, is discouraging because of the timing. Um, we're all aware of the fact that whatever president is in office and whatever judges they uh, put forth to the Senate for approval get delayed. It doesn't matter who's in, who's in which office. 
And the 11th Circuit Court, which is to hear her appeal, is down by about two to three judges. So the backlog is tremendous. Um, I talked to her attorney um, recently, and he had just argued an appeal in October that had been filed the previous October. Um, at this point, we're hoping um, and praying fervently that, that the appeal is heard in April. Yeah, Mary. I was going to say, um, when uh, Chris told me that she wanted to give this talk, I Googled this girl just to read everything there was about her. Can you hear me? Yeah. And um, <clears throat> what I came away with was, of course, the, the reports are all going to tell you what happened in the courtroom. They can report the facts. They can report a lot of other things. And I looked at all of the SEC um, investigation and everything. To me, you know, I wanted to get a grasp of who this girl was. I could see no place where she had any gain from what she did. She simply was committed to her lawyer, did a good job, and she trusted him. And when they let the bathwater out, she was a baby, she went down the drain too. And it's, it's just a sad situation. I don't know. I'm going to take just one second. I promise I won't take a long, Linda. <laughs> Years ago, my son was 22, two detectives came to my door. And they asked, did he live there? You know how they can get. They're so hot. And I said, yeah, I'm scared out of my wits. And they said, and I said, well, what's wrong? Ask him what he's been doing. They said. And so I said, well, <coughs> give me a hint. And they said something about telephone. Well, my son avoided the telephone like the play. Real quiet, shy guy. There ain't no way this is my son. <coughs> well, my son was at the eye doctor. He came home. I cut his hair the first thing I did because it was below his collar. I said, you have got to make a good impression. Took him to the police station, found out that through the investigation, they had already cleared him from what had happened. He had no access to a phone at the time that these phone calls were made. Turned out he had an accident with this long story. He was in a, involved in an automobile accident. His insurance company dragged their feet settling the claim. And when the police investigated this matter, they said to the family, is there anybody who you've had problems with? Yeah, this kid my other daughter had an accident with. That's how I got my son's name. Those detectives who came to my door, they had my son. They, they talked like he was guilty, mm -hmm. and he wasn't. They already had the, the evidence that he could not have made those phone calls. But that's how you get caught up. Yeah. And so it sounds like, oh, that's not possible. But it is possible because sometimes there are people in the legal system, in the government, who they have this power thing, yeah. you know, and you're just kind of helpless. And I, I, That's how I identified with uh, yeah, with uh, Myra. I was glad you did because I was afraid you wouldn't let me talk today. <laughs> um, so that's the story. I'm sticking to it. And I'll be here afterwards if you have any questions. Thank you so much. Thank you, Chris. I'm also in CBS Bible study, and I know how close we become in a group, and I know how the that group feels about Myra. We keep up with her, and she's representing her faith in prison to other people. One of the things she asked for lately, I don't know if any of you use it or not, but there's a little devotional book called God is Calling. Jesus is Calling. Jesus is Calling. And people are sending them to her, and she's giving them out and working with people who are in prison. So she seems to be a very wonderful woman. And at, at the very least we could do is offer our prayers as we think of Myra as she goes through this time. Thank you, Chris, for sharing that. I know how, and Dave for sharing. That was a hard work, and I appreciate that. Uh, 
as we go forth this week. Uh, oh, and Jan, I, we've all been sitting at the feet of both of you, but I know exactly about Tarzan and quicksand. I'm always worried about that, too. Woohoo! We had 105 here today. Just got past to me. This is the first week of Advent, and our candle that we will light today is the candle of hope. And so, so very appropriate that the candle of hope in those thoughts for Myra. You know, I looked up and have wrestled a little bit with hope in the last few hours. It has actually two definitions. It's a verb and it's a noun. It can be either way. So if it were a noun, hope would be a feeling that one desires, that what one desires may happen. And happy is he whose hope is in the Lord. If it's a verb, hope to wish and to expect, to desire very much and trust, to look with expectation. So I hope that Myra, we can pray for her to continue that she has strong hope in the Lord. So this woman needs hope, prayers. She needs financial help. And she certainly held on to her faith. I've heard that week after week with our group in CBS. So our Bible verse this week was chosen probably three months ago in relation to the candle of hope. But uh, there's more to it even than what I had put on the board. But may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. So let's go forth this first week of Advent with hope, whatever your hope needs to be at this point. Thank you. Thank you.